Good morning once again and welcome. I am not used to preaching indoors that much and it is hot in here. Um, we need to get back outside where I can breathe. I'm about to die. I am so thankful that you guys have come to join with us. Um, good crowd this morning as, uh, as folks begin to grow a little more comfortable with indoor opportunities. There's, uh, um, of course, there's, uh, whether you're with us in our, our gym or you're gathering in our sanctuary, or you're with us at home, we're so glad that you can be with us. I know there's still a number of you that just are uncomfortable uh, or perhaps for medical reasons just can't be indoors yet. And um, we will do everything we can to continue to provide outdoor opportunities, but the weather just hasn't cooperated with us the last couple of Sundays. I'm glad, regardless of how it is that we can gather, that we can gather together. I'm thankful that the Word of God is true and holy. Uh, we have been, for the last several weeks now, working our way through God's Word. From Genesis, we've made it all the way through to Leviticus now. Uh, we're calling this the whole story. And in 2021, we're going to work our way, Lord willing, from Genesis all the way to Revelation. This morning, I'm going to uh, save you from the summary of where we started. It occurred to me uh, last week, with the help of a few others, who reminded me that if I'm not careful, our summaries before my sermon each week will turn out to be far longer than the message is. And so um, just know that uh, so far we've made it. Genesis, Exodus, we will finish Leviticus. You all will finish Leviticus this week. We will jump into Numbers and then Deuteronomy in that order. So, uh, and, and this week, just, or excuse me, this year, just so you're aware, we will be working our way through it. It doesn't matter who preaches on a Sunday morning. Um, if Pastor Kevin preaches, he's going to keep right in line with that Bible reading so that we all continue to move in that direction, whether it's Kevin or Buster or whomever it would be, we will continue to move in that direction. So having said all that, hopefully you've looked into your worship folder there and, and turned to Leviticus chapter 23. Leviticus chapter 23, and for the first time in a long time, we are going to just read one verse of Scripture. Leviticus 23, we're going to read verse 22. I'm going to ask you, if you would, to stand with me in honor of God's Word. And when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. Let's pray together. Father God, I pray that this word would leap off the pages and into our hearts this morning. Father God, show us our sin and our Savior. Or God, change us this morning. May we leave this place more like you and more ready to follow you in the ordinary and the extraordinary avenues of our lives. Forgive us for our sin. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you. What is the root of our obedience? That's the question we're going to wrestle with this morning. Generally, most people love that new car smell, but maybe not the slightly new car or the slightly used car. The fact is, as we go through our regular, ordinary lives, our vehicles record those events with pungent smells. I have four children that are constantly getting in and out of my truck in all manners of dress and filth, and oftentimes my truck smells just like that. Today, it smells like pizza from Friday night where I picked it up. But you know, it's not really pizza, is it? It's like the leftover pizza. Thankfully, um, we have a cure for that, right? Um, 
there's those little trees. Y'all know those little things that you can hang on the rear view mirror? Most people put them a little further out of sight. But we take those for granted. But where in the world do they come from? No one likes the smell of spoiled milk, much less the person who drives around with gallons of the stuff. So when chemist Julius Simon learned of the stinky situation facing his local milk truck driver, he had an idea. As a chemist, Simon had worked extensively in the pine forests of Canada, spending his time experimenting with the extraction of aromatic oils from pine needles. Simon realized that when infused with a cardstock, these oils provided a highly effective air freshening agent. From there, he cut these little cards into the shape of a fir tree, patented the design, and all these years later, we're still calling these little, hanging these little air fresheners from my rearview mirrors. All because a chemist going through the normal aspects of his ordinary, everyday life encountered the milkman whose truck smelled terrible. About a year ago, I started a podcast. I called it the Ordinary Christian Podcast. The idea behind the podcast was that we need to produce really good material for ordinary Christian folks. As I've said many times, most of the Christian, Christian, I put that in square, scare quotes, sort of, the Christian activities of our lives will be the everyday normal activities of Christian living. I'm thankful, and rarely, but this, this week I hadn't even looked at the music we were going to be singing this morning, Kevin, I apologize. Uh, but I'm so glad that we sang A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Now that's a little bit of a different um, <coughs> arrangement of that, slightly, and, and, and being done with modern instruments. But that song dates all the way back to the Protestant Reformation. It was written by Martin Luther. Now, Luther wrote it to organ music, Correct. And we think of the organ as sort of a, a high church sort of thing, a big deal with an organ. But, but in Luther's time, it was a pub instrument. Luther recognized the need to communicate the big truths of God's Word to everyday illiterate people. Not only were they often illiterate, but the Bible had not been translated in the everyday vernacular of the people. There was not a German Bible in Luther's day. As a matter of fact, that was going to be one of Luther's greatest accomplishments and, and one of his most really dangerous accomplishments was to translate the Latin Bible into German, the language of his people. But Luther wanted ordinary folks to have an opportunity to have a greater, deeper relationship with this extraordinary God. And so Luther took and, and, and created music, set it to instruments that were readily available in pubs, and they taught the people of Germany the theology of God's grace sung to the tune of a bar organ. A whole lot of the habits of a godly lifestyle are going to be very ordinary things. And in the book of Leviticus, we find some of that. Much of what we read in Leviticus has to do with exactly how the priests were to behave and how we were to interact with our, um, or excuse me, how the, the sacrifices were to be offered. But then we get glimpses in the ordinary, everyday expectations of godly people. And that's what we find right here in Leviticus chapter 23, verse 22. So this morning I ask you this question. What is the root of our obedience? What is the root of our obedience? 
We need to wrestle with that because we are called to honor God with our lives, not only with the special parts of our lives. The first thing we see this morning is that we are to honor God with our work. Honor God with your work. The Bible says, when you reap the harvest of your land. You understand there is no reaping of a harvest unless there is plowing and planting. Work is built into the rhythm of a God-honoring lifestyle. Now, the Bible doesn't prescribe a particular kind of work. But there's a biblical precedent that we are to work and that we will be rewarded for that work. It's important for us to understand, and we'll come back to Luther for just a moment. One of the greatest uh, accomplishments of the Protestant Reformation was the redeeming of work. No longer was it only pastors, priests, missionaries, nuns, all these other people who were identified as being godly people involved in godly work. What Luther and the other reformers understood is that God has called all of us to a vocation, a godly calling to honor Him with our lives and with the work of our hands. Most of you are not... Pastors and missionaries. In my notes, I wrote most of us, but then I realized that I am one, so I need to talk to y'all. Most of you are not pastors and missionaries. Instead, you're called to something else. You're teachers, plumbers, lawyers, welders, office workers, law enforcement officers, nurses. Now, it's true that much of Leviticus has to do with these particular roles of the priests or the rules about how the sacrifices should be offered, in these particular areas, or, or excuse me, but there are particular areas of life in which we honor God other than these particular... My, my, I have just really confused you, so let me say that more clearly, all right? There are particular areas of our lives where we are going to set aside for the honoring of the Lord. Things like corporate worship, evangelism, um, personal spiritual disciplines, Bible study, all those other things that we've set aside those moments those events, those experiences to honor the Lord. But keep in mind, all of those particular things make up a small portion of your time, a small portion of the opportunities that you have to honor the Lord. Let's just think about this. If you work a full-time job, then that full-time job requires of you at least 40 hours a week. 40 hours a week. If you are super active in your church, you've committed somewhere between two and four hours of your week to the things of the Lord associated with your local church. That would mean that one-tenth of the time that you spend at work is spent involved with the church. And that's, let's just be honest, that's a best-case scenario, isn't it? For some of you, that number is more like one-fifteenth or one-twentieth or an even smaller margin. All of that also assumes that you are regular in your church attendance. Let's just be honest here. If you're a knucklehead at work every day and somehow think that you make up for it by just showing up to church once a week, you don't understand God's Word. We are to honor the Lord not only with our worship. We are to honor the Lord with the very normal, regular aspects of our daily lives. If the people that you work with find out tomorrow morning that you were in church yesterday... Are they going to be surprised? Are they going to be shocked? Or would they say, well, that seems about right. Because this man, this woman lives a life that models a commitment to Christ and to the things of Christianity. 
Or will they be shaking their head and going, how in the world does that person show up at church on Sunday mornings? When I was a teenager, I had a job for a little while working for a guy that cussed me every day. I mean, bad. You know, one of the, maybe I deserved it. I'm not sure. I hadn't really looked back at that, right? Uh, but he, he, he cussed everybody. He knew I wasn't, I wasn't unique in that. That was sort of his vernacular was to tear us down. And, and I, I never really built us back up. But there's just a lot of tearing down. I was incredibly surprised to learn that on the weekends he sang in a gospel group. Like, how? How was it possible that this man who lived like the devil... Monday through Friday, sang gospel music on Saturday and Sunday. Folks, we are to honor the Lord with our work. When you harvest, when you reap the harvest of your land, God has an expectation that there is work, but that work is to be done under the rubric, under the blessing, under the umbrella of of honoring the Lord. So we honor God with our work. Second, we honor God with our rest. Now what you're going to see in just a moment is that the two are connected. Very connected. In this one chapter alone, we find commands, you ready? To rest weekly through the Sabbath and to rest regularly through God's prescribed feasts and festivals. So there is the weekly rest of Sabbath and the regular and repeated rest of God's Festivals and feasts. Those are the things that we would now call holidays, holy days. In addition to that weekly Sabbath, we read of the Passover, which included both the Feast of the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of First Fruits, the Feast of Weeks or, or of Pentecost, the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. What we must not miss is that all of the Old Testament feasts and the Sabbath point not only to our human need for rest and God's sovereign control over the universe, they all point toward Christ. Christ is the fulfillment of all of this. Jesus is our Sabbath in that He provides rest from living under the works of the law. Just as the Passover reminded the Israelites of the passing over of the death angel after they had painted their doorposts with the blood of the sacrifice, so too we are reminded of Christ, of God passing over our sin because of the blood of Jesus that was shed on Calvary's cross. The feast of first fruits actually occurred during the week long celebration of Passover. When did the Feast of First Fruits occur? It's important. Do you know? If you know, whisper to your neighbor. Oh, nobody's moving your head. This is important. The Feast of First Fruits occurred three days after the Passover. The Feast of First Fruits, the intention was that three days or on the third day after the Passover, the people were to bring the first fruits from their field, usually a sheaf of barley, the very first fruits from their field they were to bring them present them to the priest as an uh, an offer or excuse me an offering of thanksgiving for God's provision if you don't know this this is about to get pretty exciting some of you connecting the dots already right 
It pointed to a greater offering, the rising of Christ on the third day, the greatest of all of our provisions. Then following the Feast of First Fruits, we get the Feast of Pentecost, or the Feast of Weeks, which took place exactly seven days, 49 days, plus one is 50. So the day after, seven days after First Fruits. The people were to bring the first harvest of grain with two loaves of bread. Of course, we know what it foreshadowed. What else happened at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2? God's plan there at Pentecost was revealed to save more than the Jews. And on the very first Pentecost following Jesus' resurrection, we discover that the resurrection of Jesus was literally the first fruit. Fifty days later, the greater harvest was being reaped, but it was still only the first harvest of that which was to come it's important that we understand this otherwise you just read the book of leviticus and go all these old rules what do they matter they're pointing pointing us toward god's work in christ the feast of trumpets in the seventh month that is in the middle of the year the people were to have a holy convocation convocation a festival or a feast where they would blast the trumpet And be reminded of the Lord and His law. Of course, the trumpet blast also points to the return of Christ. We know that when He returns, His appearance will be announced with the blast of a trumpet. The Day of Atonement was... had two important sacrifices. The first was the sin offering. So there was a bull and a goat or a lamb that was offered as the sin offering. But the second offering that was offered on the Day of Atonement was the goat that was brought before and the sins of the people were laid upon this lamb, this goat, and this goat was ran into the wilderness. This is literally the scapegoat who carries the sins of Israel away from the people. Well, I think that you understand where we're going here. Jesus died and shed his blood so that we could be forgiven the sin offering and we could draw near to God through his blood, but he did even more. He is also our scapegoat, expiating us of our sin, carrying our sin away with him as he was led out of the city to be crucified as our holy scapegoat. The Feast of Booths or Tabernacles, it follows the Day of Atonement. The people were to live in booths or tents for a week as a reminder of God's provision and protection in the wilderness for 40 years. But not only were they reminded of God's provision and protection, they were reminded as they gathered in those booths that God was with them in a very close personal palpable way they could look to the heavens and they could see the cloud of uh, of the pillar of cloud by day and the cloud of fire at night and know that the lord was literally living among them we see in the feast of booze a looking ahead to the one who would literally tabernacle among us as the book of john says Emmanuel, God with us, the God who put on flesh and lived among us. We are to honor God with our work, but we are also to honor God with our rest. The Israelites were to regularly rest from their labors. First, to remember the Lord and His mighty acts. And second, to rely upon Him. We've talked about this a few times recently. But one of the greatest benefits of resting is remembering that God is sovereign. He is in control and you can trust Him. 
when I close my eyes and lay my head on my pillow at night, I'm trusting that while I lay there asleep, the Lord is going to take care of everything else around me in those moments. I'm saying, if not literally, at least figuratively, Lord, you don't need me right now. And God, the world is going to be okay without Craig Thompson for a few hours. Lord willing, seven or eight hours. <laughs> when you rest from regular work, oh, let's, let's back up. In, 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 our, in our day, rest looks different perhaps than it did in the, the time of Moses or even in the time of Jesus. That's important for us to understand. Our world is no longer an agrarian economy. In other words, we work in all sorts of different ways. But the purpose, so rest may look different, but the purpose of rest does not change. Regardless of how you rest, the purpose of your rest is to focus your attention upon the Lord and His mighty acts. Okay? And to refocus your mind upon His sovereign control of the world. To rely upon Him. To trust in Him. One of my friends works in the weather day in and day out. And so when he gets a day off, the last thing he wants to do is to sweat. Right? That, that's the last thing that, that he wants. I, on the other hand, work in my office. Not sweating. We just had some HVAC work done around here. I'm not cold anymore either. I mean, it's great. It's temperate. It's wonderful. So for those of you that work in the weather, you hate my guts, and I get that, okay? Because I sit in my office, and I read, and I write, and I pray, and I study, and I minister, and I serve. That means that when I get a day off, I'm tired of walls. I need to get outside. I don't mind sweating. When I get a day off, I sweat, I work in my yard or even out in the woods, and I, in that moment, you know what, I, one of the things that I reflect upon, this, is like, this isn't over-spiritualizing from your pastor, I reflect upon the curse of creation in those times. For me, as I, I fight back against the weeds or the briars or the 106 degree autumn or August weather that we endure in South Carolina, it seems like sometimes, I'm reminded and I'm angry at Adam. Why did you do this to me? And I long for the day when work will no longer be toil, but it will be joy in the new heavens and the new earth. But see, that's the purpose of our rest. And you ready? Recreation. Recreation is one of those words that our kids should help us to understand because it's got all those stems and all those other things they're studying in school all the time. It is our recreation. It is to recreate us, not into our own image, but into His image. So understand that the times of rest that followed the times of intense work for the Israelites and even for us today, the times of rest carried with it the intention that we were to, they were and we are to refocus our attention upon the Lord and to be remade into His image. This is one of those reasons why we don't need to be legalistic about rest. Because the world looks very different. So should you cut your grass on Sundays? I don't. But I'm going to tell you why I don't. 
I don't because I'm the pastor here. And when the neighbors drive by and they see me cutting the grass, they go, I thought he was a pastor and there he is cutting his grass on Sunday. Does that mean it's a sin to cut the grass? No, not at all. And y'all, by the way, y'all think, I'm laugh- y'all think I'm lying about that? About 10 years ago, I was out in my yard washing the car. One of my neighbors stopped at the end of my driveway, rolled the window down. He said, hey, preacher, no working on Sundays. I said, what a legalistic jerk. But you know what I did? I said, you know, I'm going to be the bigger person. I'm going to pay the tax that I don't owe right here so I don't wash my car in my yard. Does that mean you shouldn't know? doesn't mean that it means that we all rest in different ways and for those of you that work inside of four walls sometimes your rest is going to look really ridiculous to people that work out in the weather day in and day out because you and I are going to sweat through three shirts on a Saturday we're going to get cut up and we're going to be tired and exhausted and we're going to say man that was a great day wasn't it and that friend you got that works digging ditches all the time is going to look and say you're an idiot I slept until 10 o'clock this morning, and it was glorious. We're tempted to go, why did you waste your whole life? Well, understand that, that for those that work with their hands all the time, that when the rest opportunity presents itself, they've got to rest their bodies. For those that have soft hands like me, it's just true. They're not as soft as y'all think they are, but still. For those of us that work inside, and, and it's, it's, it's a lot more mind work, there's, there's, there's the time where my body needs to work and my mind needs to rest. But the purpose of it still is the same. That I reflect upon God's goodness and God's law and God's glory and God's grace. And in that I'm reminded of His sovereign control over the world, of my dependency upon Him and of His love for me. So we are to honor God with our work Honor God with our rest. Does it go without saying that you can't rest unless you worked? Right? So this is why we don't get to retire early and then work later because you get to retire only after you put in the work. But then some of you retired and learned what a, a, a friend of mine, and well, he's, he, he, was an old, he, was, he was an old man when I knew him, and he's dead now, but his name was, was Shine Arthur, and he used to always, uh, sort of a, a, a hometown poet of sorts, he had that he'd published and he'd look around he'd say Craig you know what the worst thing about being retired is I said no he said I got nothing to take a break from I get no vacations you understand that for us to really appreciate rest there's got to be work if we're not honoring the Lord with our work then we're not resting we're just you ready lazy there's a difference The Israelites were not commanded to never work and to always reflect upon God's goodness, but instead to work heartily as unto the Lord is what Paul's going to say to us, but then at particular prescribed times to set those times aside for rest, for rest so that they could refocus their attention upon the Lord. Then finally this morning we're going to see that we should honor God by caring for the poor. And when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and the sojourner. We honor God by caring for the poor. There's a popular restaurant chain that charges a small fortune to eat a fried chicken salad. Some people like this place, but I I actually have great disdain for it. I won't name it because it's inappropriate. You pay a ridiculous amount of money for a bowl of lettuce and cheese with chicken that Chick-fil-A or Zaxby's would be ashamed to have in their store. 
Um, and, and they give you, with this, a free crescent roll. But if you ask for an extra crescent roll, they charge you a dollar and a half for a crescent roll. I'm telling you, it makes me angry. I remember Quincy's. When I, and at Quincy's, you got a whole basket of yeast rolls. If I go to Red Lobster, they give me all the cheddar biscuits I can eat. If I go to Cracker Barrel, they make more biscuits than my wife. And folks, that's saying something. And yet I go to this place and they charge me a dollar and a half for a crescent roll. I bought crescent rolls at the grocery store yesterday. Wyatt bought four cans of crescent rolls because I don't know what he wants his mama to make, but we are going to be big when he finishes. They were a dollar and a half a can. Not a dollar and a half each. Obviously, an overpriced restaurant isn't listed in Leviticus, but the concept is a bit similar. One of the greatest ways that we are commanded to care for the poor is by not being greedy. If you need an extra biscuit, take the extra biscuit. If you have an extra quarter, give away an extra quarter. If you have an extra 20, give it away. Read that again. You shall not reap your field right up to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after you harvest. I got a pretty good idea about how it is that that restaurant decided once upon a time that they were going to charge an extra dollar and a half for a crescent roll. There was an accountant somewhere that looked at this and said, Listen, y'all have an opportunity to make more money off the crescent rolls. You charge a dollar and a half for an extra crescent roll, and you're going to increase your profit margin over the next you know, 10 years by $3 million or something. And somebody was like, well, if we can make $3 million, then we'll stick it to the little man. He doesn't need a crescent roll. So I just don't eat there because they make me mad about their crescent rolls. And for those of you that do eat there, you, you listen, the man, you've, you've surrendered to the man. You've got to overcome these things. The Bible says you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after you harvest. We don't live in an agrarian society any longer. It's important, but we need to ask the question, how do we apply these teachings to our... See, if we lived in an agrarian society, the lesson would be pretty clear. Leave food in your field so the poor can eat. Don't be greedy. Whatever falls off your truck gets left in the, in the field, and whoever needs it can come get it. Whatever is along the edge or in the ditch, that's for the poor. You leave it alone. Most of us don't make a living by farming, but the same truth is there. We're commanded by God to leave margin in our lives to care for the poor. And when you're able, your care for the poor should be a normal and casual activity, not necessarily a budget item. Now, I'm not suggesting that you shouldn't budget for caring for the poor in your life. What I'm saying is that our care for the poor should arise out of the needs around us and that we should build in margin in our lives so that those who are in need might be blessed by us as the opportunity presents itself. Okay? In the ancient world, we can be pretty confident that there was not a carefully um, calculated formula for how much was left in the field when they finished Reaping, You understand what would happen. They'd go through and, it, and, and they would go with the, with the sickle and they would reap with the sickle. And then when they were finished, the gleanings were what was left in the field. If, when we get to the book of Ruth, you're going you're gonna to dig into some of this in detail. But the gleanings would be what was left in the field. So the, 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 the professional harvesters or the landowner would go through and they would gather these big sheaves and they'd set them up. But then over there, there'd be just a few grains here and a few grains there and if you went through the whole field and, and, and worked it all up, you might get an extra bushel if you were busy to do it. 
And then if you worked in the edges and the ditches, you might find another bushel there. But what the Bible says is that all of that where you might find another bushel is for you to find absolutely nothing but for you to leave it for the poor around you. We drove past um, a cotton field not too long ago. I don't remember which one of my kids, White or Aubrey, one was with me. And, and of course, after the commercial harvesters go through, there's still a, a lot, what it appears from, from the naked eye, right? Is there's a lot of cotton left over. And they said, why did they leave so much cotton? Because nobody's going to go through and pick all that cotton right now. They, they got as much as they could, but financially it doesn't make sense for them to go back in there. But let me explain something to you. If it made sense for them to go back in there financially, they'd go back in. It made sense for the children of Israel, for the Hebrews in that day to go back in financially and to gather the gleanings and to sell that. But the Lord says you're to leave it alone because the care for the poor is the responsibility of all of you. It's everybody's job. So what does that look like? How do we leave (coughs) margin for the poor? How do we make sure that that which is left behind after the harvester has done his work can still be applied in the margins of life. See, this is one of those ordinary things that we're supposed to be about. As followers of Jesus, caring for the poor and the downtrodden and the down and out should be an ordinary, regular part of our lives, not just an exceptional event. It should be so ordinary and average as a part of our lives that we don't draw attention to ourselves when we do it. It should be so ordinary and average that it's second nature. I have a pastor friend. Their church is on a main thoroughfare. Our church is not. We, we have a food pantry here um, that, that we serve for, for folks that are in emergency need. But this church is on a main thoroughfare. That they don't really have an emergency food pantry. But a lot of the people that they have come through are not people that, that would necessarily be able to benefit from the type of emergency food pantry that we have with lots of canned goods. And all. There are a lot of homeless folks that come into their church and, and, are, and are looking for help. Um, and uh, he, he was concerned that, that if he gave cash away, that, you know, that, that they, they, they might not buy food with it. Now, I, I do want to say this to you, folks. If you give somebody a $20 bill on the street, you're not responsible for what they do with that. When you choose to honor somebody... When you choose to honor somebody, and, and don't be that guy. Don't look at somebody and say, I'm not going to give it to you because you're spending it on liquor. You've got no idea what they'll spend it on. If you want to bless somebody, you bless them in the name of the Lord, and you trust the Lord to take care of it when you, live, when you did it. You didn't give it to them anyway. You gave it to Jesus. You understand? But, nevertheless, he, he was concerned about that. But rather than say, I'm not going to support those, what he did was he said, the closest fast food restaurant to my church is a McDonald's. And he went and, 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 and he regularly keeps a handful of McDonald's gift cards in his, in his study there at the church. So when folks come by, he's able to say, look, I don't have any cash, but here's a gift card and you can at least get you something to eat today. And, and that's just one way, but it's, it's become a natural and normal part of his life. That's just what he does. It's what they do. What are, what are the natural, normal ways that you care for the poor now, and, and, and I would just remind you that when we talk about the poor let, let, me, let, me, let, me, let me rephrase that statement because in our world the, the, there, there's so many levels of poverty right um, I, I, I read this today, uh, just l- last night as a matter of fact in, in, uh, 
in the 60s, I believe. I think I'm right here. 50 out of every 100,000 people globally died of hunger. That number today is 0.5 out of every 100,000. That's, that's how much we have impacted poverty at a global level. Okay, And that's a wonderful thing. And most of that comes about as a result of, of um, improvements in, in agriculture. But, but let's, let's be careful. So we, we think about, let's think about those who are less fortunate than us. Let's use that term. Those who might have greater needs than we do. Right? The person in need may be the person that serves you your food at a restaurant one day. It might be the person who needs gas in their car tomorrow. It, it, it might be that kid at your school that wears the same clothes every single day. This isn't necessarily the homeless. It's not necessarily the person you see on the street. It's just those people around us that we can bless. And folks, let me just encourage you, build enough margin into your life to make sure that you can do that. There was a time as, as a young man in my life, and I'll, I'll never forget where it finally clicked in my head, that suddenly I was financially comfortable enough that if I felt the need and the desire to give somebody $20, that I didn't have to think twice about that. I could just bless them without worrying about whether or not there was going to be gas in my vehicle the next day. You know, as a college student, you don't have all those opportunities. What's it look like to bless somebody? The Bible says that our care for the poor, I don't want to belabor this, but I just want to make sure we understand. The Bible says that our care for the poor should be a part of our normal daily existence. A normal part of our regular daily existence. So we honor God with our work. We honor God with our rest. And we honor God by caring for the poor. And if you've been paying attention, then by this point you've noticed that I still haven't answered the question that I began with. What is the root of our obedience? You say, Craig, that's all well and good, but you sound about as legalistic as the guy who drove by your yard and told you not to wash your car. That's because the guy who drove by my house and yelled at me, and, and for what it's worth, he was just picking on me. But that guy might not have fully understood that our obedience is not rooted in a hope and a desire that we might serve and honor and please the Lord. But instead, our hope is found, it's rooted in the last six words of Leviticus 23, 22. I am the Lord your God. Folks, you're going to see this repeated over and over and over again from me as we work our way through the Old Testament. We tend to read the Old Testament as a list of rules for how it is that I might appease this holy God. But the Old Testament law is never written that way. When we looked at the Ten Commandments, we were reminded that he began with, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the house of bondage, out of house of Egypt. He began with, I am the Lord your God. Here it's a little different. He lists all these commandments and then he comes all the way down and he says, and then we root it in, I am the Lord your God. If you can imagine the laws, the festivals, the commandments we read in Leviticus 23 are sort of a tree. And what the Lord does is it explains all the branches and he explains the trunk. And then we dig our way all the way down and when we get beyond, below the surface of the ground, we find the roots that nourish and uphold and strengthen this tree and those, that root is... 
the Lord. But not just God in an out there sort of sense, but the Lord your God. About this time last year, we had a lot of work done in our front yard. Um, those of you that uh, COVID messed up everything, right? A lot of you, we do a, a Christmas drop-in at our house every year. So a lot of you came and, and tried not to trip over all the trees and the tree roots and everything in our front yard back last December. And I was a little nervous about folks kind of navigating through the, the mass of, of foliage there. Um, but, uh, but then last, uh, I think it was, around, it was in February, I believe, of last year, we had all those trees cut down. And, uh, and then we had the stumps dug up so that we could have grass put in and we could have football and baseball in the yard and I could see out my, off my front porch. It was wonderful. But, um, matter of fact, it was Brian. He, he, he dug, uh, had the, the roots dug up for me and uh, he called me, or he didn't call me, he texted me. He said, you, you, you got to look at this hole because we send each other really ridiculous text messages and and the taproot on those massive pine trees, the hole to dig out that taproot was eight feet deep. It was huge, right? We, we, couldn't, we couldn't have dug that hole on this stage. I had to get all the way down. That's what the root is that grows these big, beautiful trees. And, of course, when you start looking at the root system on large, old oak trees, they're even more unique and robust and incredible. What is the root of our obedience? What is it that enables our obedience to grow up into something beautiful? It's the Lord our God. And it's so important that we keep that part in perspective. He is our God, our Heavenly Father. We'll pull this thing to a conclusion here in just a moment. As I wrestle with the question, why is it that I should honor God with my work, with my rest, and my caring for the poor? I must make sure that I'm rooted in Christ. I had these big, massive pine trees in my yard, but beside them I had this sorry maple tree. And I, I love a maple tree. But the reason I had this sorry maple tree is because I had these massive pine trees that had grown up around it. That maple tree couldn't, couldn't get the root system that it needed. It couldn't get the sunlight. It couldn't get all the things. And as a result, it just stunk. Thrilled my soul to cut down pine trees and broke my heart to cut down that maple. But there was no choice because the root system was not sufficient for that tree to become something beautiful and strong. If your efforts to honor the Lord are built solely upon your efforts at obeying Him so that you will receive His love, you will find your faith deformed and weak and faulty. Because all the while you'll be competing. You'll be competing for the Lord's attention. You're like a maple tree trying to overcome these giant pine trees that are blocking out all the sun. And all the while you're going, I'm doing it, I'm doing it, I'm doing it. 
But if you're rooted in Christ, if you're rooted in Christ, you're not obeying to earn God's love. You're living in His love. And you're obeying Him because you want to. Because He loves you. Because He deserves it. I don't know what brings all of us here. Now, what's, what's fun for me right now is that we're beginning to see folks trickle back into the church, right? COVID has affected so many things, but we're beginning to see folks trickle back in. Over, over the course of the next three months, our goals really are going to be how do we begin to regather. And, and that regather is not necessarily a physical term, but, but a regathering, a, 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 a herding up, as it were, formulating. Because right now we're kind of this way, and the desire is that we would be moving in a direction together. And so we've got to begin to regather the flock so that we can then refocus, we can re-engage. Because there's a world that desperately needs the impact of God's people and of God's gospel. However, unless you're rooted in Christ, what you're going to find is that you're trying to work for the Lord and rest for the Lord and care for the poor, but in all those things you're going to struggle to ever do enough because the whole while you're going to be laboring more and more and more. God, have I done enough to make you happy, Lord? Jesus is your Sabbath rest. Jesus is the fulfillment of these things. He doesn't look and say, do this and I will love you. He says, I love you, now do this. If you're here today and you don't know what it is to experience that love of Christ. You're here today and your whole life you've tried to spread out for the Lord, but you've never been rooted in Christ. You're here today and you've spent time trying to earn God's favor and you've never just rested in Him. Today, what I want to do is to extend to you an invitation to have your life changed, revolutionized, and saved by the Christ who is the fulfillment of God's feasts, the Christ who is the fulfillment of the Sabbath, the Christ who not only facilitated the passing over of our sins, but the Christ who became our scapegoat so that we might not only be forgiven, our sins could be forgotten. Today, I invite you to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. I'll be right up here beside the stage as we sing this morning. I would love to explain to you what it means to have a relationship with the Lord. But perhaps today you're here and you say, Greg, I've got that relationship with the Lord, but I've spent a lot of time forgetting what it's like to be rooted in Christ. If you'd like to come and pray this morning, this altar's open for you. If nothing else, as you gather there at your seat this morning, perhaps you'd respond by singing to the Lord in praise and honor. Because He's worthy. Lord Sabbath is His name. There is not His equal. And in Him we find our rest. Let me pray with us. Lord God, I pray that You'd be with us today. Move among us.
Lord, I pray your spirit would speak. Lord, I pray that though the ears here may have heard this pastor, that Father God, hearts would hear the Holy Spirit of God. That, Lord God, you would speak through my failures and my faults. That your Holy Spirit would be enough. We trust you, God, for you alone can save. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand with us as we sing this morning.